This week takes us to Leander and Cedar Park, Texas, where a high school student commits an unthinkable crime. However, five years later, the community is left wondering who really did this. This is episode 55 of Texas 1031. Hey everyone, this is Hannah, this is Texas 1031, and this is a Texas True Crime Podcast. Today I am going to tackle the very shocking and intense case of Greg Kelly. I came to learn about this case uh, last year when I watched the Showtime docuseries called Outcry. The uh, five-part series covers the case from start to finish, and it will be my only source for this episode. This case is very long and convoluted, so I will be giving you the high points and skipping around a a bit to get the case covered in as few minutes as possible because knowing me, I could talk for hours and I don't want to do that to you. So if it seems like I skipped anything, I probably did, but I'm not leaving anything out necessarily. I'm just giving you the detailed cliff notes. Before we get started, I would like to make a small announcement I had started a Patreon for the podcast late last year when I wasn't working, and I did that so I could still create content, A, because I had the time, B, Cassie and I were going to be taking a hiatus because I was moving to New Mexico, and C, her job was really kicking her ass at the time, and D, we wanted to figure out a way to record episodes over Zoom or whatever. But I kind of realized that none of that really matters at the end of the day, and we will record together again when we get to it. So I am more or less letting everyone know that I'm going to solely release episodes on the free feed wherever you listen to the show. And if I feel like picking Patreon back up again, I will. But for now, all monthly donor support has been suspended and you will just have to listen to me tell you stories about murder for free or crimes for free, whatever. Um, It will just be me hosting for now. And if and when Cassie makes an appearance, she will. And it'll be awesome. Um, I guarantee no consistency or weekly or even monthly episodes. I just guarantee I will do my best to keep the podcast alive. I've gotten several messages as of late asking, you know, emails and messages asking, when are we coming back? We want more episodes, whatever. So I've really took that as a sign that y'all want some more shit to listen to. So um, yeah, just a reminder, we are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, etc etc leave a review if you want or whatever anyways let's get started so picture it leander texas or i guess cedar park and leander texas 2012 2013 the term outcry refers to an outcry interview an outcry interview is the actual basis by which the investigation really begins into allegations of sexual impropriety This is the interview in which the child first goes on record stating what happened to them and who did it to them. After the outcry interview has been conducted, a detective would be sent out to collect any evidence and do any follow-up interviews. This information I just read to you is coming directly from Sean Mannix, the Cedar Park, Texas chief of police. I just wanted to open with that explanation to define what the title of the docuseries means. P.S. I am still in my kitchen recording, so sorry for dogs, cats, echoes, wind, refrigerator noise, whatever. Greg Kelly was a sophomore playing defense. Defense? (laughs) Greg Kelly was a sophomore playing defense on Leander High School's 5A varsity team under the number two. Leander High School had a big rivalry with the Cedar Park High School in Williams. I can't say this, Williamson County, which is just north of Austin. That fact isn't super important, but it explains where this took place in Texas. So we are talking Williamson County slash Cedar Park area. Uh, There was like a weird, I don't know, Leander had its own football team and they're right next to each other. And I don't know, they explained it in the documentary, but I don't really care. And no one cares, except if you probably play football there. So sorry, not sorry. 
Uh, Greg wanted to do well in football and school since he was in middle school. His goal was to be accepted into a college with a scholarship to play football. He want, uh, excuse me. He went above and beyond with his training and his studies to ensure he excelled to his full potential. And in fact, he received several different scholarship offers when he was still a junior in high school to attend college and play football after graduation. He was offered a full scholarship to Rice University in Houston, a full scholarship to Texas State, and another to the University of Texas, San Antonio. I heard there was a fourth one, but it was never listed in the documentary, so we're just going to list those three. During Greg's junior year in 2012, his father suffered a stroke and his mother was still recovering from a brain tumor, so heavy family health things. So Greg's family family's medical issues were occurring right in the prime of his you know, football career, and the family was having a hard time dealing with what to do with the parents' medical needs, but also what to do with Greg and the possibility of having to take him away from this school that he had spent so much time and effort at. At just the right moment, friends of the Kelly family, a couple named Shama and Ralph McCarty, offered for Greg to stay in Leander at their home to finish out his high school football career and senior year of school. The McCarty house was a bit of a party house known to the high school kids and football players, but nothing too crazy occurred there. It was just the, a general hangout spot for the teenagers. Shama was a big football supporter and overall supporter of Greg and his abilities on the field. Shama herself had a son, Jonathan, that was a year younger than Greg, and he played on the JV football team. So Greg and Jonathan were already acquaintances. They knew each other from football, school, and social stuff. Even better friends were Jonathan and Gabri Anderson, which Gabri is Greg Kelly's girlfriend. She's super cute. She's blonde. She's super in shape, fit, dancer. She does all the dance team stuff. She'll later go on to dance pretty professionally in my opinion. Um, so adorable friend group, super cute couple. Greg always referred to Jonathan as his little brother and they became very close. So when the opportunity to stay in Leander to finish out his high school career was offered to him, Greg was ecstatic and extremely grateful. So he jumped at the opportunity. According to Gabri, Shama told Greg that they would make sure he got to school. They would provide a car, phone, food, whatever he needed until his parents were well again. In the summer of 2012, Greg was really enjoying living with Shama, Ralph, and Jonathan. Ralph had a local lawn care business, and Shama ran a daycare out of the home. Greg and Jonathan were taken care of and loved like they were both sons of Shama and Ralph. It was a very loving and caring and supportive environment. During this time, Greg had a rigorous and predictable routine. He'd go to the gym around 5 a.m. to train, then he'd go to practice around 8 a.m., then go to school the rest of the day, then back to a second practice after school, then head home, eat dinner, watch TV, and go to sleep, rinse, and repeat. By the summer of 2013, Greg had signed on to play for UTSA, so University of Texas San Antonio. He was about to enter his final year at Leander High School and head off to college right after that to play college football. However, on July 15th, 2013, Greg's life as he knew it would come to a screeching halt. After finishing up a day at summer training camp, Greg would check his phone and see that he had multiple missed calls from one of his older brothers, Marlon. Marlon told Greg to not go over to Shama's house. She was freaking out right now and making some extreme uh, accusations. Because, according to her, one of the children in her daycare, which again, she ran from her home, was accusing Greg of sexually molesting them. Greg immediately tells his brother, no way I did that. This kid must be lying. I would never, you know, do something like that. In a panic, Greg would go to his girlfriend's parents for help. He didn't really have anyone he could go to at the time, at least locally, that he could, you know, really confide in that could offer some guidance or adult support. Because at this point, Gabriel is on a trip in California. His mother, Rosa, isn't doing well health-wise. I mean, she's there in in town, but she isn't in the greatest condition. And Shama is the one accusing him of having sexual contact with this child. So he goes to see the Andersons. So Greg shows up at Gabriel Anderson's parents' home with Shama and his mother, Rosa, in tow. Greg sits everyone down and explains the situation for everyone to hear. For whatever reason, after this the Andersons tell him to call Gabri. Again, she was in California at the time, but Greg calls her and tells her what's going on. And they all collectively decide, look, Greg didn't do this. We'll get his name cleared and find out who actually did this. 
After the initial news was made known throughout the family, Shama tells Rosa and Greg that they need to hire an attorney. She recommends Greg's first defense attorney, Patricia Cummings, which is one of the biggest mistakes of this entire ordeal. Soon after the meeting with the Andersons, Shama, and Rosa, Greg was booked into jail the night of July 15th and released the next day. He was essentially told, hey, if you go to the police station and turn yourself in to go to jail, it'll look like you're being cooperative and the police will get the rest sorted and they'll figure out you're innocent and it'll all work out. However, more dreadful news broke fast around town, not only about the allegations, but the news that Greg had essentially been formally expelled from Leander High School and he was placed in the Williamson County Alternative School, which was military based. He was sent there to finish out his high school education. Um, that, that's one hell of a summer, if you ask me. He was on track to fulfill his lifelong goal of playing college football and finishing out his senior year on an epic note. And then within 24 hours, he is arrested for sexually molesting a child and he is sent to a military-based alternative school with all college prospects having been you know, completely disintegrated along with his reputation. When Cedar Park police made the arrest, they also had to announce to the public that if any other children were exposed to Greg Kelly during their time at daycare, then parents needed to ask their children if they had any similar experiences. This is so reminiscent of the McMartin preschool case, minus the, you know, satanic panic element, but still. Unfortunately, this is when uh, the second child came forward. So two four-year-old children are now claiming that Greg Kelly had sexually molested them. When the first kid came forward, many people had some doubts that this allegation could be true. But when the next child came forward, people started to believe that there might be something going on. It's hard to sit there and preach, you know, believe the victims, support the victims. But then when it comes to this stand-up guy, people are oscillating between their beliefs and opinions regarding Greg Kelly because... They, Greg Kelly's guilt because they just didn't see this coming. Fortunately, there is a difference between the pillars of the community and the scoutmasters and the popular cool guys of the world that are actually sadistic pedophiles and child abusers when compared to Greg Kelly. It just doesn't align. And I don't even know the guy. He's just one of those people. Like he essentially, everyone really had a hard time coming to terms with Greg being the perpetrator. Greg Kelly was being charged with, quote, super aggravated sexual assault of a child, end quote. Someone with that charge and sentence at minimum would get 25 years without parole, and the most someone can get is 99 years without parole. We're going to fast forward a bit and jump around timeline-wise now. So at the time, the (laughs) the Williamson County District Attorney was Jana Duty, D-U-T-Y, Um, The documentary emphasizes the fact that Williamson County was known for being very blunt and straightforward with the media and wanting the public to know what was going on. It also emphasized the case that really put Williamson County on the map in a negative way, which was the case of Michael Morton, a man who spent 25 years in prison for the murder of his wife, a crime that we later find out he did not commit. The same district attorney's office offered Greg a plea bargain only a few days before his trial began, which is outrageous. Like, why wait that long? Why even offer it at that point? But Greg claims the plea was 10 years probation, lifetime sex offender registration, like a certain dollar amount in fines and time in jail. He immediately says no. And the prosecution comes back with five years probation, lifetime sex offender registration, et cetera, et cetera. At that point, he was getting pressure from his mom to just go with the plea for fear of what could happen to him if he actually goes into prison. But Greg stood firm and said, no, I will not admit to something I did not do. On July 7th, 2014, Greg's trial begins. The trial goes quick. The first day of the trial, Assistant DA Sunday Austin reads off what the first trial stated in the outcry interview. Sunday tells the jury that the boy seemingly out of the blue tells his mother what allegedly occurred between him and Greg. Sunday continues to tell the jury that the boy told his mom it happened two times. So they decided to consult a family friend who was a police officer who advised them to report the incident to the authorities. Um, I thought about inserting the audio into the episode, but I don't know. That's like copyright crap. So um, 
essentially the boy kind of says that Greg made him put his pee-pee in his mouth. Like that's verbatim. Um, and then we'll get to the second child later on what he said. Um, do, do, do. Okay. The child actually testifies during the trial via closed video circuit TV. So they weren't actually speaking to a room full of adults and jurors or Greg himself. And during this, the second child. So when the second child comes up, he essentially recants his entire testimony, stating that Greg never tried to do anything sexual with him and nothing ever occurred between the two of them. I'll go into what he actually says in his outcry interviews later. However, in addition to the accusations brought forward by at least, you know, one of one child at this point, because the other one recanted, the prosecution decides to call Philip Forbes to the stand. Oy vey. This witness, in my opinion, is only brought forward as character assassination, and it's it's weak at that. Um, this trial is just an abomination. Mr. Forbes was the owner of the gym that Greg was a member of. He would proceed to tell the jury that during the time that Greg was a member of the gym, the two would become acquaintances and sort of, you know, you know, befriend one another, primarily on the basis of the fact that Philip had been in the Air Force and Greg had allegedly told him that he was a Marine. I think that it's possible that this man was just a pawn for the prosecution or perhaps you know, at the minimum, most like, you know, innocent way. He got the uniform that Greg had to wear to the alternative school confused with him being a Marine. I don't know. I don't know. I do know, excuse me, that Greg's attorney made him think that Philip Forbes's opinion and testimony was irrelevant and wasn't going to affect the jury's verdict. So I don't think anyone really took his testimony as hard and convincing evidence because it essentially was hearsay. So I don't, I also don't think, or excuse me, I also think Greg was like 16 to 17, or excuse me, 16 to 18 when he attended that gym. So Greg looks like his age, like he's not overly tall or bears any major facial hair or anything that would make someone think he is in his 20s or 30s, the typical age of a young looking Marine. I think this guy fucking perjured himself and was compensated by the prosecution, but that is just me. The closing arguments for the prosecution were that the evidence and the child's testimony will prove that Greg is guilty. So just keep that in the back of your mind, okay? The evidence, which all the evidence is, is now one child's testimony. So that's that's all we have. Greg's attorney did the absolute worst fucking job defending him. She didn't give any other person reason or excuse as a viable defense for Greg. She literally said to a jury, quote, I'm not really sure what we've got going on here. And quote, what the fuck? Um, we will find out why she does a less than adequate job defending Greg here shortly. The jury deliberated for quite a while. Uh, According to one of the jurors, it took some time in convincing and refreshing and reviewing of the evidence and testimony, and it was down to 11 to 1. Uh, The courts told them, essentially, hey, this has to be unanimous or no one goes home. And of course, with that kind of pressure, I bet you know what the verdict returned as. Yes, they found Greg Greg Kelly guilty. The very next day, Greg was sent down to the courthouse again for his sentencing hearing. Now, this just gets way worse at this point. This part's just so gut-wrenching. So Greg is able to sit down with his family before the hearing. He's... His his garbage attorney, Patricia Cummings, walks in and tells him, look, I've spoken to the judge and the judge said he'll give you the bare minimum sentence if you waive your right to an appeal. The bailiff says, hey, you've got five minutes to make this decision. So just like the jurors, the family and Greg are feeling the pressure to decide. So Greg told his family to make the decision for him. So they chose for him to only serve 25 years and have no appeals. What makes this awful is their attorney never explained any of this to them, like how this works or what this decision means over the other. They assumed she had acquired all of the evidence, did all of the testing, called all of the witnesses and experts. So this verdict in sentencing was just what it was. But at at least in 25 years, they'd see Greg again. Wrong. Patricia Cummings did fuck all for Greg and his family and honestly, should be crucified and lit on fire. But again, that's just me. 
Of course, the media response around this verdict and sentencing was truly split, in my opinion, 50-50. Like I mentioned earlier, Greg was such a quintessential hometown hero, classic, all-American guy. On top of the fact that he was just the kindest and most genuine guy around, it was so hard for many to believe. On the other side of the argument, there were people that were wanting him to fry and rot in prison, and they fed into the prosecution's narrative so much And in my opinion, they had the biggest pair of fucking blinders on that anyone could ever wear. Meanwhile, Greg is beginning his sentence and out of left fucking field, a guy named Jake Bryden shows up. He's got a reputation. He has some money and he wants to help the Kelly family fight for Greg. Jake creates social media campaigns, news videos, posters, signage, anything really you can really think of to create this group of Greg supporters. It's called like the Greg Kelly Foundation or their hashtag is hashtag pray for GK. Many people, including the police chief, said that Greg that these Greg supporters were cult like in appearance. Um, that's mentioned several times in the documentary. Um, I guess, well, that's their right to their opinion. Um Some believed that it was weird that many of these people didn't know Greg and were backing him in his defense and he didn't, you know, sexually molest these children. To be honest, if you have a cell of common sense and read an article or watch this documentary, you will see how fucking ridiculous any non-supporter of Greg Kelly is. They are literally the dumbest people and in absolute denial. Um, They interview a, a classmate of Greg and Gabriel's named Lindsay Armstrong. And I think that at some point in her interviews, she alludes to, I don't think she, I can't remember if she outright states that she was sexually abused as a child, but she is a huge advocate of, you know, believe the children, listen to the children, you know, believe victims. And I hope that she watches this documentary because um, her opinions were just so black and white and she wouldn't take any other option besides Greg uh, as the perpetrator. It was just kind of crazy to see that people can, you know, believe what the prosecution says, especially later when we go over what the lack of evidence there was. It's just crazy. I don't know. This girl has it all wrong, but best of luck to her. And I'm sorry if she was abused as a child, but, um, you know, Things have to be taken case by case, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. And I'll support that statement later on in this episode. Immediately after Greg is convicted and sentenced, Patricia Cummings approaches attorney Keith Hampton with all of her files and says, you've got to help this guy. He didn't do this, which is the literally the only good thing she ever did for Greg. Keith met with Greg's family just a few days after Greg was convicted and was hired on soon thereafter to represent Greg. Keith even is quoted saying in his interview for the documentary, quote, there are more innocent, more innocent people who are wrongfully convicted in this state than a lot of people realize, which is good, reassuring shit. Interesting side note, Keith was also the attorney attorney who got Bart fucking Whitaker's death sentence commuted. Like, I didn't even put that together. Uh, if you don't know anything about Bart Whitaker, go look it up. There's tons of podcasts out there. I think Generation Y does a really good episode on him. Uh, he's kind of a piece of shit, in my opinion. He killed his own family and tried to make it look like he was like shot and attacked as well. It, it was really embarrassing. Um, obviously, that worked out well for him. But um, Keith also represented the San Antonio Four, which is a super fascinating and terrifying case of four women being wrongfully accused and convicted for sexually assaulting two young girls. Um, so he is very tough and a smart attorney and honestly seems to be a genuinely nice guy. He also has a really nice voice. It's very Southern and, and soothing. I don't know. I kind of have a crush on him, but anyways, Keith's first order of business was to really get the evidence related to this crime. If indeed it did happen. So he goes back to the police reports and recorded phone calls officers had when they reported the allegations to the child abuse hotline. Um, And based on that information, he was able to deduce that the alleged, you know, sexual assault molestation took place on Friday, July 12th, 2013. This is where the red flags immediately start getting waved. Okay, this is when you begin to see how shitty of a job his defense attorney really did because Greg Kelly had moved out of the McCarty home a month prior on June 11th. 
it's like she didn't even do the bare minimum to defend Greg. Getting a basic timeline is essentially, excuse me, getting a, a basic timeline is essential when going to trial. So why the fuck wasn't that, you know, this fact brought up in his first trial that he wasn't even living there at the time of the allegation. So red flag number one. In addition to Greg stating that he wasn't living in the home at the time, Keith gets Greg's phone records and GPS records going all the way back to December 2012 when the phone was activated up to the week of July 12th when the accusations are coming in. Keith wants to make sure Greg isn't hiding anything and wants to definitively, you know, prove that he was where he said he was. And based on this, Keith can pinpoint Greg's exact motherfucking location based on GPS and written text messages regarding where he was on July 12th, 2013. Greg Kelly was helping his brother Aldo move on July 12th and even sends Gabriel texts and photos of him stuck in Austin traffic. Mind you, all of these are date and time, time stamped. Again, Patricia Cummings did fuck all to defend Greg. What a cunt. Keith then begins to investigate the outcry interviews and the role that the CID officer had in the interview process. CID stands for Criminal Investigation Division, in case you were wondering. Um, Keith finds out that the investigator assigned to the case, specifically involved in the outcry interview interviews, uh, is Chris Daly, another piece of human garbage defacing law enforcement. Remember at the, the beginning of the episode, I mentioned that after the outcry interview, a detective would be sent out to collect any evidence and do any follow-up interviews. Yeah. Well, Detective Daly didn't do that. Uh, He essentially watches the outcry video, reads whatever report was taken and given to him to review, and he draws up an arrest warrant and, you know, arrest Greg. There was no um, secondary investigation of his own, follow-up, confirmation, or anything. If he would have taken the time to look into Greg's phone records, he would have seen what Keith saw, which was obvious proof that Greg was not where this child says that he was, or that Greg was. At this point, Keith organizes a meeting with Jana Duty and her fellow prosecutors in her office. He presents a PowerPoint to just try and give the basic facts of new evidence to prove Greg Kelly deserves at least a hearing to present even further information that Greg was wrongfully convicted. But he said that he didn't even get past slide seven. And Jana Duty said, uh, we believe the children and completely shut down Keith's presentation, despite the evidence. Um, this is when the documentary introduces Dr. Kamala London. She is a child testimony expert and specializes in false memory. Her response to the, quote, we believe the children, quote unquote, um, is, yes, we should believe the children when they are interviewed with proper techniques. And that last factor is incredibly important since children overall are incredibly unreliable witnesses simply based on their communication skills and memory recall, like no fault of their own. It just is what it is. They're not fully developed yet. Unfortunately, many believe that in the case of Greg Kelly, the interviews with the children were done so improperly and with high suggestibility methods. Dr. London's belief is that we need to not only listen to what the child is claiming or saying, but we really need to look at how the child is being interviewed. So what the jury is not privy to in Greg's first trial is that when the second child is interviewed, the one that recants in, in, the, in the courtroom or on video in the courtroom, he had already been interviewed twice prior. Okay, so... The outcry interview that is is shown is technically his third interview, if that makes sense. Okay, so remember old Detective Daly? Yes. Okay, he comes back into the picture and decides to do shit police work and interview the child for a third time himself. Both of the first interviews, the child denied anything sexual took place between he and Greg. Okay, and then again on the stand he denies it as well. It's starting to rain. So I have like skylights in this house. So sorry if you'll hear that. 
Um, Detective Daly comes into the interview room. This is this is the description of this second child's interview, outcry interview, okay? He comes into the interview room with his gun on his hip and proceeds to just spew information about what he believes kind of happened. Things like, your mom told me that Mr. Greg is the boss of you and he had you put lotion on his pee-pee. Right away, this is leading the child and planting thoughts and actions in his head. The kid literally shakes his head no several times in the video to answer Daly's questions. Daly asks, did he tell you to keep it a secret? Again, the kid answers no. He kept asking about the lotion application and if Greg got an erection and what did Greg's pee-pee look like and on and on and on, essentially not listening to the kid's answers of no and I don't know. He just kept going and going. Daly wasn't getting what he wanted from the child, so he switched up his tactic. He would give him this direct option question and not like a yes or no question. So let me give you an example. He would say, Greg made you put lotion on his pee-pee one time or two times. So as a four-year-old would, they chose one of the options presented to them. They aren't developed enough to know. I can say, no, it happened zero times. The kid even says he wasn't scared of Mr. Greg and he doesn't know why he didn't tell anyone what happened because it, nothing happened. Like, it's all being forced. Like, it's just the the interview is so crazy when especially if you don't know anything about interviews, which I really didn't. But when you have Dr. London pointing out step by step as this interview goes on, it's astonishing. She gives some crazy examples of these, you know, controlled uh, studies that they did with kids who who have a routine doctor's exam. There's no genitalia being touched. Nothing inappropriate happens. It's on film. The kid doesn't know it's being filmed, but the doctor does. And that is supposed to be the control. And then they follow up with the kid weeks, a couple weeks after, a couple weeks after. Did the doctor touch you anywhere? And they would say no the first time. But then the second interview, they would say yes, because you implanted that question the first time. It's weird how kids' brains work, um, but... Evidently, there's some scientific backing to it. So pretty interesting stuff. Um, It's so obvious this kid is denying abuse, not just in the interview, but in the other two interviews the child was forced to do. So again, if the public or the jury had been privy to this interview and given five minutes educating them on the subject of false confessions or false memories, then I think this case would have turned out completely different. But again, the majority of the juries are selected to be ignorant and emotionally invested rather than use common sense and think logically. So uh, never mind. I strike the statement. Dr. London makes an excellent point of saying, quote, people who sometimes identify as child advocates see child advocacy as that their role is believing the child and believing the child was abused. But unfortunately, it seems by believing the child that they really only believe them, in fact, if that child says they were abused. I also think children should be believed when they deny abuse. Very profound stuff, in my opinion. Like that was, I mean, it's a real dig on people who are like, believe the victim, support the victim. But when it comes to children, you know, it's... um. You have to think about it a little bit more, especially when they're being interviewed and what they're telling you. What pisses me off about this whole thing, okay, hold on, I take a swig of a drink. What pisses me off about this whole thing is that the people that are vehemently against Greg Kelly, like this Lindsay Armstrong person, take the stance of believe the children, okay? But my problem is that I I do believe the children. I'm a huge supporter of that movement, you know? Always believe the victim. Don't negate their allegations due to their age, race, job, tax bracket, or whatever. But we can still believe the children, and Greg can still be innocent. Did that ever cross anyone's fucking mind? All that means is that someone else did this, Okay. Saying you're a Greg supporter doesn't mean you discount the children's experience, allegations, or potential trauma. All it means is that most likely someone else committed this crime, if in fact the first child was abused, which we'll get to later. Meanwhile, back at the district attorney's office, a video was leaked. Not the kind you're probably thinking of. D.A. Jana Duty had her husband make a spoof video of what it was like inside the prosecutor's office. 
It was made to show at the office's Christmas party. It's kind of a highlight reel. It was incredibly unprofessional. It mocked judges. It mocked the Greg Kelly Foundation and really kind of insulted her overall staff and the cases they had taken to trial. So why she thought that was funny, I don't know. But she gets hers because soon after, Jana Duty would be arrested and begin serving a 10-day jail sentence for contempt of court. This came about after district judge ruled Jana Duty withheld evidence from the defense in a 2014 murder case. Are we really surprised? No. Shortly thereafter, it was election season. And Sean Dick was new to the scene and was running for office. He had previously been a defense attorney and now wanted to get a chance to work for the other side. Um, how Jana Duty was able to run again in 2016 with her jail sentence having occurred, I don't know. Um, maybe the timelines didn't overlap. I'm not, I'm not sure. Regardless, Sean Dick wins. Thank fuck. Soon after Sean takes office, Keith Hampton is back on the streets fighting for Greg. He sets up a time to meet with Sean and lays it all out for him because at this point he was shut down with Jana Duty and her people. So now with this new election, he has a fresh set of eyes, a new person to go to, and he's on the move for Greg. Keith showed Sean a writ he was planning to file, and Sean believed the writ to be very compelling. So he decided to call in the Texas Rangers to investigate the allegations that Keith had lined out in his writ. Essentially, Greg Kelly's case was reopened. Sean decides to hold a public hearing as well as a public autopsy of the case. And during this process, a big bombshell is dropped. A new person of interest is named. I bet you all listening already know who that person is. Jonathan motherfucking McCarty. I'm assuming we all knew that, but he was the only teenage boy living in that house at the time of the allegations mentioned by the first and in my mind, the only credible victim. Um, so, yeah, Jonathan McCarty is the new new suspect. After about six months into Greg moving into the McCarty home, Greg claims that Jonathan's attitude shifted and he saw big changes happening within Jonathan. Greg noticed Jonathan's lack of respect for others increasing, his grades were dropping, and his level of envy was palpable. A female daycare employee, Rosalinda Castillo, even noticed how jealous Jonathan was of Greg. She would have to go pick up his schoolwork from school because he was skipping class all the time. Greg noticed Jonathan was bringing strangers over to the house more frequently. He was very explicit in how he wanted to be Gabriel's boyfriend as well. It's pretty apparent that Jonathan McCarty wanted to be Greg Kelly. He wanted his athleticism. He wanted his girlfriend. He wanted the praise from his parents. He wanted Greg's life. After the original trial and Greg's sentencing, Jonathan hadn't been up to any good. He'd been arrested 16 times. So that puts even more suspicion of him, uh, puts more suspicion on him, in my opinion. So not really a good look. In addition to everything Keith has on Jonathan at this point, which isn't super damning, it's just like, hey, there was this other fucking teenager in this house and he has a really shitty record. So like maybe we should have looked into this. Um, He also wants to make sure what the child victim is saying lines up with Jonathan just even being a suspect. Okay, so he goes back to the video footage and the pictures taken by CPS and the interview with the first child victim. So during the interview, when asked where the abuse took place in the home, the child actually describes Jonathan's room, despite saying the name Greg. In the interview, the child says it happened. This is kind of confusing, so just bear with me, you guys. I just have to say it for, like, record's sake. In the interview, the child says it happened twice in two different rooms. However, in April of 2014, The child once again is interviewed by two assistant district attorneys and the child claims that even though he said the sexual molestation happened with Greg in two different rooms, he is changing it to only happening once. But finally in trial, he says it happened twice in one room. Okay, that's out of the way. Had to say that again just to make sure everyone knew I wasn't leaving anything out. On the stand, air quotes, he was on circuit video, closed circuit video. Um, He, in trial, the child admits it happened twice in one room and perfectly describes that room being Jonathan's. Again, sorry for the confusion. So with all of the newly gathered info that Keith has acquired, on August 2nd, 2017, Greg's writ hearing begins. 
My biggest, oh gosh, my biggest takeaway from this was the questioning of Detective Daly. Daly eats shit so hard while on the stand. Like he has to admit that he did everything wrong and out of proper procedure and protocol. One of the most major concerns brought up was that no one actually made a documented or you know, procedural identification of Greg Kelly as being the offender. They didn't do lineups. They didn't do photo lineups. They, they, did, they didn't present anything to these children, okay? They just took the name Greg Kelly and never had either of the children identify him. So Detective Daly never interviewed any of the other adults in the home at the time of the allegations. He never made a list of people living in the house working for Shama or Ralph either. He didn't even go to the fucking house to conduct a walkthrough or some form of investigation. Fucking nothing. This just, again, leads me further back to how shitty Patricia Cummings is as an attorney, because if she actually gave a fuck, she would have pointed all of this stuff out. Like, this just seems like basic shit, but whatever. At one point, they play back some of the recorded interview with the second child and Daly. Um, And during this, Daly is the one who brings up Jonathan's name, which is interesting. Okay, he asked the child if Mr. Greg or Mr. Jonathan gave the lotion to put on his pee pee. And the kid responds, Mr. Jonathan, which we can't take for um, certain because, again, the kid was choosing between one or the other. He wasn't, you know, this kid wasn't abused. Um, but it's just still interesting that Daly actually could have had like a moment of decent police thought process of like, let me, let me throw in someone else besides Greg Kelly. Like his like natural instinct to seek out other suspects actually made a, a moment in that interview. But the fun fact is that he further admits later on the stand to not having any other investigation done regarding Jonathan McCarty. So why the fuck would you bring up a person inferring that he is a suspect and then never do a follow-up, especially after the kid says Mr. Jonathan. And according to Daly, he believes that the kid is telling the truth. So I know we know now that the child wasn't telling the truth in his interview, but it is odd that Daly is the one who brought it up. Hmm. Interesting. Anyway, this is Rich. He uh, was asked on the stand. Oh, God. Okay. He was asked on the stand, what is the ultimate goal of a police investigation? And his response was successful prosecution. Um, I was pretty stunned. I was expecting, you know, finding the truth, getting justice, helping a victim, something like that. But no, successful pros- prosecution. Like, again, what the fuck? When all you have is the wishy-washy testimony of two four-year-olds and then one of them recants multiple times after not even admitting to being abused in the first place, you're left with one semi-decent four-year-old witness and no other evidence at all because you didn't do an investigation. That doesn't warrant a 25-year sentence without parole to me, but okay, I guess it did to them. In fact, uh, it comes to light that Daly was actually the one who contacted the second child's father over a phone call and says, hey, um, we just arrested Greg Kelly for sexually molesting this child at the daycare you currently take your son to. And we think he may have been molested. Uh, We think he may have molested your son as well. Can we set up an interview? It's like they knew this case was shaky and they needed another victim to make it stick. So they made one up. That's why the kid denied it the first two times in the interview. And on the third one, he was just like, fuck, get me out of here. So he admitted to some shit. Uh, The whole thing regarding the second child was staged and orchestrated by Detective Daly. And this is a well-documented fact, okay? So the cherry on top of this clusterfuck is that, um, God, y'all are going to love to hear this. Detective Daly is now sergeant over around 10 other detectives. Excellent decisions being made, okay? Okay. Next up in this parade of horribles as a witness is motherfucker Patricia Cummings. Day two of the hearing for Greg, okay, arrives and Patricia Cummings is supposed to be questioned. Unbeknownst to the district attorneys and Keith, 
Patricia has been sitting with the judge for a while, finishing an ex parte hearing that they cannot be present for. Essentially, she is pissed that an ineffective assistance of counsel claim is being raised against her. She goes back on everything she said about Greg and his character. She's got an attorney and is ready to fight for her reputation. She is only answering questions unrelated to her attorney-client privilege clause during this hearing, which means she is incredibly difficult and annoying because she wants to prevent any defamation or negativity put towards her, her reputation, which... It's her right to do so, but she had months to put this option of questioning forward and she waited until hours before her testimony and questioning was going to be provided. So fuck her. The identification of Greg Kelly came back up during Patricia's questioning as well in other parts of the trial. And the reason it did was not only because no child ever identified Greg, but because Jonathan and Greg look eerily similar. Was there a possible confusion between the guys in the eyes of the four-year-old? Perhaps. Multiple witnesses came forward and testified that when pictures of Jonathan were brought to Patricia, along with his background and recent kind of physical and mental changes, she refused to listen to these people. She stated, we're not going to go there. She knew they looked similar and she knew he was a troubled kid, but she said, fuck off. We're sticking with Greg. The biggest fucking revelation in this hearing really gives us the answer to why she was such a shit attorney and why she is continuing, continuing to be obstinate on the stand. And that is because she knew the McCarty family in the past and a big fucking shocker. She had represented one of the four brothers in a case involving indecency with a child, including public lewdness and indecent exposure. She had never previously represented Jonathan specifically in the past, but she represented the three other brothers at some point over the course of 10 years of the 10 years prior. So there was an immediate conflict of interest as soon as she signs on to be Greg's attorney. I don't even know why she said yes to taking on this case when she knew the history she had with the family. So I don't I don't know. I guess she thought, well, Shama recommended me. Greg probably did it. There isn't a conflict of interest because Greg did it. But lo and behold, Greg didn't fucking do it. So she can't just outright. I guess she should. But in her heart, oh, I can't I can't I can't bring up a child of a family that I already represented. Go jump off a cliff. Next is Texas Ranger Cody Mitchell. Now, remember, Sean Dick and his team brought on the Texas Rangers to investigate the claims in the writ that was brought forward by Keith Hampton. Okay, so during his Cody's time on the stand, he expounds upon an interview between Cody himself and Jonathan about some SpongeBob SquarePants pajamas. So essentially, um, Ranger Mitchell is having to go back through everything and re-interview people and reinvestigate everything. So he sets up an interview with Jonathan and this is what they discuss. Jonathan denies that they were his, these, these SpongeBob pajama pants and claims that they were Greg's and that Gabriel had given them to Greg as a gift. This is relevant because in the interview with the first child, they ask the child at any point, did Greg have any clothes on when this assault took place? And the kid said, yes, they were SpongeBob SquarePants pajamas. However, countless witnesses would state and testify that it was Jonathan who wore these SpongeBob pajamas. He wore them out. He wore them to school. He wore them constantly. Cody also showed Jonathan a cell phone picture with him, Jonathan, wearing them. So he's kind of fucked at this point. But Jonathan keeps on denying. Jonathan claims he never owned SpongeBob pajamas, but maybe they were Greg's and he claimed they shared a lot of clothes. So Greg would take boxers. He would take socks and back and forth. He pretty much left it at that, that maybe he could have worn them at some point, but doubtful. At this point, the hearing has finished. All of the findings are handed over to the, for the district judge, uh, Donna King, to make a ruling, which Donna King is like such a babe, cute glasses, gorgeous blonde hair, adorable little cartoon face, like she's precious. Anyways, however, 13 days after the writ hearing, new evidence emerges from The three search warrants, oh man, Ranger Mitchell had submitted affidavits for. One was for Jonathan McCarty's phone and the other two were for Greg's phone. Ranger Mitchell writes in his report regarding the search warrant evidence that during the time of the alleged sexual contact with the four-year-old boy, 
Greg had an increased frequency on porn sites. He believed it was a negative pattern and showed signs of him forming an addiction to pornography. There was also alleged findings of Greg having multiple accounts set up under adult friend finder. Additionally, Mitchell finds a photo of Greg and the alleged child victim, number one. Essentially, this is real shit timing for Greg. One might say this was a bit calculated and seemingly purposeful. Why would, wouldn't he release these findings during the hearing? Why wait until afterwards to confuse people and add to the character assass- assassination aspect to this crime? I can confidently say that this is character assassination because Keith Hampton is able to prove just that later on. Okay, I personally believe that the majority of the search warrant evidence is fabricated and Ranger Mitchell has lost significant credibility. So loss of credibility is very correct because, as I mentioned, Keith was able to prove that the photo with the child wasn't the first child victim at all. It was of him, a different child entirely, some kid named Parker, along with Gabri, all smiling, sticking out their tongues, like completely innocent photo. This guy's wrong. He should have fucking compared. I, I like, how do you get the kids mixed up? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Um, it's fine. Adult, uh, adultly. Additionally, adult friend finder confirmed over the phone call, over a phone call with Greg and an email with Keith that none of the accounts allegedly linking Greg to the website were true and no accounts were ever created under those usernames listed in the affidavit for from Ranger Mitchell. So all of that adult friend finder and the picture with the child was complete bullshit. So in the documentary, you hear and you see the email, you hear the phone call with adult friend, friend finder customer service, I guess. And like, they're like, no, that's not a real username. No, that's not a real username. Like on and on and on. Like this guy made it up, which is crazy to me. Um, the porn, on the other hand, was somewhat true. Greg had visited porn websites, but nothing in excess. Uh, let's just say it was probably just as much as any other high school teenager. That's that's really my opinion on that. The producers really dig into Greg and they let him know at first glance, this new evidence coming from this search warrant doesn't look great. And additionally, according to Ranger Mitchell, Greg has been uncooperative and deceitful. The next clip, though, after the producers discuss this with Greg is of Chief Mannix, the the Cedar Park chief of police. Uh, It's him commenting on how dishonest Greg has been. And the only two examples he gives, and maybe this was edited this way, but uh, I doubt it because this guy's kind of an idiot. Um, The only two examples he gives regarding Greg's honesty or dishonesty is, quote, he's lied about wanting to talk to the police, but the police won't talk to him. And he lied about being a Marine in Afghanistan. (laughs) That's literally all he could say. Come on, dude. Like, oh, my God. Um, All right. Despite these search warrant findings, District Attorney Sean Dick, the prosecutor who reopened his case and allowed the writ hearing to occur, lets Greg out on bond while Judge Donna King reviews the hearing findings and works on making a decision for Greg's future. He had spent three years in prison and is now back with his family for the first time. Fast forward several months later. Greg and Gabriel are engaged. He is living his life outside of prison and waiting for the courts to return their decision. When the results are finally released, District Court Judge Donna King delivers the message. She, she says, quote, the court finds the cumul- accumulation of evidence supports applicants claim of actual innocence. He has met his burden and established he his actual innocence. He he is actually innocent of the offense for which he was convicted. The court recommends that applicants claim of actual innocence be granted and that his conviction be set aside. Judge King also says that Patricia Cummings was ineffective. Suck it, Patricia. Uh, Greg's rights were violated and he was denied due process because of a deficient police investigation. She said that Detective Daly was reckless and uninformed. (laughs) <laughs> bitch. So yeah, fuck yeah, Donna King. 
Um, so now Judge King will pass along her rulings and the writ hearing information and take it to the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals. Essentially, Greg has to wait for weeks and months and eventually years to get news regarding his actual innocence claim from the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals. So every Wednesday, the CCA uploads their decisions to their website and people can view them there. So in the meantime, however, eight to nine months out of prison, Greg is working at a gym. He's a trainer. He's working on getting back into football. He gets a call from Keith who tells him that Jonathan McCarty has been arrested for the rape of a 15-year-old girl. I'm uncertain of how this falls in the timeline of things, but um, at some point, in addition to the rape, an unsealed court document would be released to the public confirming that Jonathan McCarty had child abuse images on his cell phone and computer, as well as frequent visitation to certain porn sites. So this guy's doing great. Um... Evidently, regarding the rape, Jonathan put liquid coating into the 15-year-old girl's drink and raped her. She later talks on the interview, and she also confirms that Jonathan McCarty walked into her home with SpongeBob SquarePants pajamas on, and her sister also witnessed it as well. Um, So there's that. Uh, Sean Dick tells the producers of the documentary that after Greg's release and Jonathan's name was brought to the media during the hearing in 2017, several girls from Travis, Burnett and Llano counties came forward, along with the girl from Williamson County, who alleged that Jonathan McCarty had raped them. So it's not just her. It's multiple. And he's got child abuse images like this is a bad, bad look, like I said. The um, female from Williamson County claims her rape occurred in 2015, despite her coming forward years later, which is still brave as fuck. So good for her. Um, 11 months after Greg's release, while waiting on the CCA decision, Cedar Park PD hired an outside company to do some quality control investigations into how the police uh, department conducted their investigations and overall policies and procedures. Um, I wasn't there at this like city council meeting, but according to many people who were, it was a load of garbage. The company was real and they presented a long list of real things that needed to be changed or modernized or improved upon. And the chief and the city council made some speeches and agreed it was all great and wonderful and such a good investment and that they would begin taking the company's advice ASAP and begin implementing their recommendations immediately. However, The majority felt like it was a distraction or a Band-Aid to cover up the crazy fuck up that was the Greg Kelly case. So fast forward some more. It's been a year and a half since the CCA was given Greg's case to review. As he continues to wait from the CCA, Greg gets an opportunity to meet and train with Jeremy Hills. He's a guy who trains the UT alumni in Austin and the NFL free agents. Some NFL free agents, I guess. Uh, Greg desperately wants to be admitted to UT and try out for the walk-on football team. That is his current life goal, but he can't really make any major decisions until the CCA makes their decision because if they come back saying, hey, sorry, not sorry, he's going back to prison. So he doesn't want to like start anything he can't really finish. So now it's 2019 and Greg and Gabri are in New York City together while Gabri is attending the Broadway Center for Dance, specifically November 6th, 2019, almost two years after being released from prison and waiting every Wednesday to hear from the Court of Criminal Appeals, the day finally comes. Greg Kelly receives a relief-granted motion from the CCA, exonerating him and confirming his actual innocence claim. On November 27th, 2019, Greg Kelly was formally exonerated by the gem of all gems, Judge Donna King, in the same courtroom that originally convicted and sentenced him to 25 years in prison just five years prior. Some hot takes regarding the people involved in Greg's case. I wanted to let you all know that the original prosecutors in Greg's case, his defense attorney, Patricia Cummings, and the families of the children involved in the accusations refused interview requests with the documentary producers. I didn't just leave out their interviews or comments, okay? Um, also, fun fact, I guess, I don't know, um, on April 24th, 2019, the district attorney at the time of Greg's case, Jana Duty, remember her? Um, yeah, she committed suicide, by the way. So 
There's that. More hot takes. Detective Daly is still an active officer with the Cedar Park Police Department. Chief of Police Sean Mannix retired on February 28th, 2020. Detective Daly can literally jump off a cliff, in my opinion. There were moments where I watched Chief Mannix and I thought, you know, I think this guy is falling into the political pressure of this case and he has to know what he's saying is supporting and supporting is absolute bullshit, but it was just too far gone. I don't know. I don't totally despise this guy, but I think he just lacks a spine. Um, Good thing he's retired, I guess. And the biggest hot take on February 6th, 2020, Jonathan McCarty was released from prison. He has not been charged in relation to the super aggravated sexual assault of a child crime for which Greg Kelly was convicted of in 2014. And that is the story of Greg Kelly. Um, Questions and theories. I don't really have any. I think that this docuseries did an excellent job and was incredibly thorough. I think that this case is just a tragic lesson in human error and that anyone is at risk to being subjected to that error. Uh, Thank you guys for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Go watch the documentary on Showtime if you want more information. I've linked the trailer in the show notes. I can't really link the show itself, even though it's my only source, because then I'd be letting everyone watch it under my account for free, and that's not smart. So anyway, go check out the trailer if you want to see if it's worth your time. And anyways, we'll be back at some point with more Texas true crime. And if anyone is listening, happy Halloween. Happy Halloween.